0: being curious means you have to be exposed to novelty, you have to read, you have to look at things, you really have to explore and you have to, sometimes to lose yourself a little bit doing things which is a bit silly. So I used to say it's a mixing of being rational and being irrational at the same time, uh, but you follow your instinct. Mm-hmm.
1: Didier K. is a world-renowned Swiss astronomer. Having earned his bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics from the University of Geneva, he later completed a PhD in astronomy at the same institution where he focused on exoplanet detection. In 1995, Didier, along with his colleague Mitchell Mayer, made a groundbreaking discovery by co-discovering the first planet outside of our solar system that we've ever detected, known as 51 Pegasi b. Their pioneering work led them to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics
2: in 2019 and significantly advanced the field of exoplanet research. Since then, more than 5,000 exoplanets have been found. He is also the founding director of the Center for the Origin and Prevalence of Life at ETH Zurich, among many, many other notable contributions and experiences.
1: All right. Again, we would just like to say a huge thank you to Didier for being here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and record with us. We are so immensely excited to have you on and it means a lot that you're willing to sit down and record with us. So Now, let's get into our first question of the day. You discovered the first exoplanet that humans have ever discovered, 51 Pegasi b, working alongside your colleague Mitchell Mayer through something called the radial velocity method. So do you mind telling us more about what that process looks like exactly?
0: Yeah, it was quite pleasure. So actually... The- the concept is pretty simple. When you have an orbiting planet and the star, the host, is moving a little bit, and it's is this is kind of pulling and push effect relating to the gravitation from the planet on the star. It's a very tiny motion, uh, but it's a motion. So um, if you think about this orbit, because the star is having an orbit, essentially a very tiny one. Um, there is a moment when the star is going towards you and away of you, so that means there is a, a change of speed. The speed is getting closer could be away, so you see the speed. Mud, I mean, wandering around and 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 going uh, redish and bluish, and and you can use um, a techniques called the Doppler shift that is moving the the color or the wavelength of the signal. Um, um, and then, and then that's what we do. So we use a spectrograph to record the spectra. Spectra is uh, the information you retrieve from the stars. There's a lot of absorption lines related to all the um, the element in the atmosphere of the star. It's a bit like a code, a genetic code, in a way. And we just look at the motion related uh, to the Doppler shift of these lines. And from these motions, uh, we find out that something is uh, is moving the star, and uh, you can compute the mass. And when you find that the mass is in the planet range, this something has to be a planet. And that's exactly how we did it. The challenge is about uh, the amplitude of the signal. It's a very, very tiny change you have to, you have to pick up. And uh, what we did more than 30 years ago right now is to design and to build a new kind of machine. And that's what we did. And we published that. And that was the beginning of a revolution in a sense, because then plenty of planets has been detected on other stars.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and I'm curious, how do you think the discovery of exoplanets has like changed the way that we understand and observe the universe?
0: Well, and that was really the missing link. I mean, we we know so much and and so little at the same time. But something was very puzzling: is they are planet orbiting the star, the sun. Uh, we have plenty of sun. I mean, the galaxies has hundred billion stars, and they are like sun. So, so the question is: Well, there must be planet as well, and it's it's a kind of a consequence when you form a, form a star, you have some left over, and from this leftover you have planet. And it was extremely frustrated not to be able to find them. So what we did is really then showing: Oh, yes, there are planet. They may be a bit different, at least from what we we think they are, but it's still, there are plenty of planets under the stars. And. Um, you can see that as uh, the extension was was done, and 500 years ago, when people uh, started to understand that, oh yeah, we we are a planet orbiting a star. <laughs> so now we know that there are other planets orbiting the star as well uh, uh, in the galaxy. So that is the significance of uh, of the discovery. The second significance is when you start talking planet on the stars. Of course, you open. A kind of a new territory, which is the question: so whether there is life on the planet, and that was really a fantastic trigger uh, for um, questionings uh, the origin of life on Earth, and then trying to th- figure out: well, if there is life on the planet, how are we going to find them? And that's a very difficult question.
1: <laughs> All right. So I'm actually really glad that you mentioned this whole thing about life on other distant exoplanets, because my next question, if you're willing and able to answer it, is off the top of your head. What do you think are some of the most interesting exoplanets that have been discovered recently, and what can you tell us about the probability of these distant planets harboring life?
0: You no, know, the, the beauty of the field is most of the planets we have found um, they don't really um, they don't really match with the one we have in the solar system because most of them are on a very very short orbit, and I was a kind of the shocking discoveries of this uh, um, um, this this. this Many planets we know is most of them they are different from the solar system. So that is really the most interesting element. It's not really the the detail of the planet is the fact they're very different. And and the second element they they seems to be all very different. So they are all the kind of size, all the kind of mass, and they seems to be located at, at many range of distances. We have now a planet which is in between the Earth and and uh, and Neptune. We call it super Earth or mini Neptune. We have super Neptune. We have mini Jupiters. We have the hot Jupiter. We have the hot rocky planet. We have the lava flow planet. We have the water planet. We have so many, and actually, all this is real. This is the real diversity of the planetary formation. So, so them as I mean, I don't have a I don't have a list in mind because essentially, the world diversity is essentially the interest of the field here, and uh, and and we are still facing a challenge um, because right now a planet that is like the Earth in a sense that Earth mass, Earth size, at an orbit which would be um, at the similar distance that between uh, the Earth and, and the Sun, we have not found any. And it's not because we're not trying. It's because we have not really reached the threshold uh, in our techniques, in the detection sensitivity, to be sure about the discoveries. I'm pretty sure there must be. So there is a big terra incognita in a way you can think about the people exploring um all the all the piece of uh, our planet and uh, 200 years ago and going into some area, they were mapping, and there are some some location on the map. They just wrote Terra Incognita. It means they have no idea what it is there. So it's exactly what we're facing. The embarrassing situation is the Terra Incognita is the planet like our own, and, <laughs> and and we have to do some work. So I would be very very excited to have a planet like our own be detected under the stars. That would be my bit my obsession here <laughs> to get that. <laughs>
2: Super cool. Um, and our next question is: If we do find a planet to live on, what do you think are some ethical considerations for living on other planets and maybe other moons in the future?
0: Well, the the, the ethics is more related to what we do with the knowledge we have. Um, well, fortunately, detecting remotely planet and life farther away, there's not much we can do because. Uh, the distance between the star is such, so the likelihood will go there. It's almost zero, and there is not really um, any ethical element there, which is very different from the knowledge that we use to do things um, uh, and uh, and uh, the, the understanding of the understanding of the sun, for example, how it works, and led to the uh, molecular weapon. um The the understanding of uh, of how the uh, genetics works and with the DNA uh, led to manipulating the DNA and. And, and tomorrow we will be making life essentially uh, in the lab. And there's a lot of ethical questions, is what we do. The the understanding of the chemistry we're having is great. And we can invent something that does not exist, which is called plastic. Well, the plastic is a cool catastrophe right now because we have, I mean, filled plastic everywhere. And that's uh, and like an alien element onto the Earth. So so I think that the ethical challenge with the other planet is not really a concern. Uh, but of course, uh, the philosophical element that what you bring as a perspective, finding life under the planet, I think is interesting because um, it would demonstrate that life is some kind of universal process, it's part of the universe, we are just one amongst many. Um, but life doesn't mean that you reach a level of uh, awareness that you can build a telescope and point to other stars. So. Uh, Life existed on Earth uh, in the past uh, four billion years. Uh, we're only pointing telescope in the last 500 years on, on, uh, on, on stars. So the, the moment when you can do something, it's also the moment when you can destroy yourself, which is a very, very likely possibility, I think, um, given the kind of the nature of a civilization. You have to fix that. This is unfortunately your responsibility <laughs> to take care of that and to change the world. <laughs>
1: Yes, unfortunately, but you know what? I think we're going to manage. I think we're going to manage. I think
0: uh, (laughs) society has set us up with
1: a lot of really great tools. I think we got it. Um, So for my next question, it's a bit similar to something that I asked you at Volars, but I was just wondering, let's say we're going about terraforming another planet completely, let's say Mars, because I think that's the most likely one right now. Um, and everything is taken care of, you know, the atmospheric pressure is regulated, all the right gases are there, the atmospheric makeup is okay, we have deflected all solar radiation and everything is good. What do you think our timeline is to getting to that point, if we ever do?
0: Well, um, frankly, I'm not a great fan of terraforming Mars. I would much prefer that we take care of the Earth first. I think we have a big problem and it seems we are impossible to solve it right now. There is a serious challenge on Earth already. Uh, the fact that we cannot control something very simple, which is uh, the production of CO2. It would be, it's very simple to do because all the waste is done by the planet. Uh, so I don't give it any chance to us to do anything on Mars until we are um, doing this on, on Earth. Now, the challenge I think is the, source, uh, is the brain and the way uh, as a species we behave. Um, given how we use the knowledge, how we can handle things. Um, I think there is a huge amount of effort which is needed right now or uh, understanding a bit better uh, the human being in the sense of a species and how we can change and we're still the same we used to be here a thousand years ago essentially we're still behaving the same but we have way more power right now so i would i'm afraid that we are going to destroy ourselves on earth before we're able to really move to another under the planet uh, like mars No, i'm much more interested about the moon um because the moon is much closer um it's something you can still go technically speaking well we have to improve a little bit i think to make it a bit safer but it's certainly good um, it's a fantastic platform to uh, to study the universe. And the dark side of the moon is fascinating. So I would bet first for a moon base, a bit similar to the people that are staying on the bottom of the ocean um, as an exploratory um, element. The idea that we would terraform Mars doesn't fit the bill to me. Well. The controlling we need to do would be exactly the same that staying in the ISS. So how far we can live, isolated completely, and, and it, it, the planet doesn't do anything for you. You need to really control things at every time. Uh, so that would be my um, I think my my position at that moment. So Mars is not really, as we said here, my cup of tea, really the idea of going for conquest on on Mars.
1: <laughs> I see, that makes a lot of sense actually. And if we are talking about lunar habitation, I do have a very quick follow-up. So now that NASA has discovered water molecules, the presence of water molecules on the lunar surface, do you think that contributes to our timeline to possibly setting up lunar habitation in any way?
0: Well, going to the moon is something that that is rather easy compared to many other challenges in the space business. Uh, Whatever we do, the Moon is the most hostile environment, you can think about it. Anyway, just, you have to fight against the hostile environment. So you have to think about how you can maintain uh, a survivor kit uh, in a way we can have a... Um, it's a bit like staying in the South Pole. I mean, you don't really survive in the South Pole. You survive because you have a proper equipment and so you have a couple of people that are staying um, for a long, uh, long period. We have people staying a long period on the on the on the space station, so similar habitat. So we can definitely create habitat. It's not a big challenges. Certainly, there are um, chemistry on the on the moon. Uh, in in the moon, you can use. There are element in the moon. There is a lot of stuff. I mean, the moon is a piece of the earth. Um, whether we can uh, use that our benefit, certainly I think we can break atoms and we can use this and. Uh, uh, we could you know we can we can take the water and, and 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 break it and make hydrogen on earth and this would be a fantastic uh, tool to remove completely the oil problem and if you have hydrogen engine we could just use the hydrogen and break the water. so we can do exactly kind of a similar story we can make water and we can bring the oxygen somewhere so I think we can play around the question will be the energy and the amount you need so we will never fill the moon with people it would be always an experimental setup I don't think we should stay there forever. I think uh, uh, AI, robots will deal with that much better than us. Um, but going time to time to fix things and to uh, develop new things, yes, definitely we should do. Uh, look, you know, we are designed to stay on this Earth and uh, the chemistry uh, is built up with the Earth and we are made it our habitat. Any Anytime you lift uh, too much uh, the Earth's surface, um, just going to the top of the Himalaya, and just die. So we're not we're not designed to do that you will have to think about another way to really stay or maybe terraform a new um, um human being that's something something we can think about it I used to joke I say if you want to go to Mars you should uh, cross our gene with the one with the scorpions it would be interesting to be a scorpion g- gene so
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: survive much better radioactivity
2: <laughs> yeah gene editing might be a solution um <laughs> Um, so I want to respect your time. So we'll end off with one last question for our audience. For all the kids out there that hope to one day follow your shoes, what advice would you give them?
0: Oh, you know, it's always difficult to give an advice. I can tell you what I did myself. I am super curious and I never give up on curiosity. So I have the same level of curiosity, of appetite for knowledge that I had when I was a kid, essentially. So I maintain that, and being curious means you have to be exposed to novelty, you have to read, you have to look at things, you really have to explore, and you have sometimes to lose yourself a little bit doing things which is a bit silly. So I used to say it's a mixing of being rational and being irrational at the same time, uh, but you follow your instinct. So I just follow my instinct that I lack very much uh, being curious, I feel at ease in the curiosity, uh, and this is how I became a scientist, and I got a bit lucky, I took opportunities, and uh, and that's it. And this is how I think I'm, I managed to make a, a living from something that sometimes um, I would qualify as some kind of soft insanity kind of lifestyle. <laughs> so this is my advice, and do really what you need to do, or do what, what you feel, um, follow your instinct, and if you're curious, please stay curious. That's the best trick to to become successful in science.
1: I love that mindset. I think it's very inspirational, actually. So, thank you for sharing.
0: Thank you very much. So, thank you so so much. I wish you good success and um, a lovely day.